0: All right, if you got your Bibles, open them up. 1 Peter chapter 4. Man, it got quiet. 1 Peter. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. All right. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men and We pray that your Holy Spirit would show up in power and might and take these verses, these words penned by Peter, but um, inspired by the Holy Spirit and bring them alive in our lives. And Father, that we would um, really understand what it means to be called by you, but also to glorify you uh, through that calling, the way we live our lives. Thank you for these men, thank you for their faithfulness, and I pray that you would bless them today as they spend time in your word, spend time talking with one another, and Lord, that um, we're just going to thank you now for what you're going to do in our lives through this study this morning. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so this morning, my computer's locked up, this morning we're going to talk about calling, but we're going to talk about calling as it relates to glorifying God. All right, let's try it again. So we're going to talk about calling to glorify God. So for weeks now, we've been talking about this issue of being called by God, called into his kingdom, called into relationship with Jesus Christ, called to uh, receive an inheritance, called to eventually be glorified and to spend eternity with him in heaven. Um, But right now we're living here and now and what Peter's talking about is your calling as it relates to how do you live your life in this context? The context in which we live, the context in which he lived. And I don't think there's a whole lot of difference between the two contexts. I don't think that much has changed from the day Peter wrote this to the day we live in. There's still lost people, there's still sin, there's still immorality. And we have to live in the midst of it. So this morning, we're going to talk about calling as it relates to glorifying God, that ultimately that's the goal, that's the objective. And in verses 1 and 2, he says, since therefore Christ suffered, remember we've been talking about suffering, we've been talking about that God's called you not only to have a relationship with him, but part of your calling is that you will suffer when you do good. When you do what God has called you to do, when you live righteously, rightly, according to God's will, you will probably suffer just as Christ suffered. And so here he says, since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So Jesus suffered. It was the will of God for him to suffer. It's... The will of God that we will suffer, not to punish us, not to uh, diminish us in any way, but it's part of living in this world. As you live righteously in the midst of unrighteousness, the two don't—they don't make good playmates. They don't get along. They don't like one another. In your life, guys, when you live righteously, will end up convicting other people who don't know Christ. The truth is, if you live righteously, your life will convict people who claim to know Christ. And they won't necessarily like the way you live your life. And so it's the will of God. And this this morning, what I want to really kind of drive home is that um, one of the fears I have is, is, as we've gone through this study, he talks a whole lot about behavior, conduct, how you live your life. What I don't want you to walk away with is that you can through change of behavior, suddenly be more spiritual. That's not what this study is about. It's certainly not what Peter's letter was about. It's not you changing your behavior. It's you realizing that having a relationship with Jesus Christ should change your behavior. And it should flow out of you. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, the power of the Spirit of God should flow out of you. And so it's not about you just trying harder, working harder, doing more. It's about realizing that if I have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I should be seeing fruit from that. It should be showing up. And and that's the real issue here as as we go through this study. And so the idea of obedience is huge, that when God tells you to do something through his word, if he convicts you through his spirit to either do something or stop doing something, you would obey and say, I don't want to do that. I don't want to stop doing that. But, you know, because you told me to, I will. And I'm going to trust you for the outcome. So if he tells you to, for instance, share the gospel with a lost coworker, and you just are scared to death and you don't want to do that. And you're afraid that it's going to label you in the workplace and everybody's going to think you're a lunatic and a fanatic. Obey him and see what happens. And be ready to suffer, perhaps, because you did that. You know, they may not want to hear that. You may get labeled. You may find yourself ostracized. But the issue is, are you willing to obey God and even suffer by doing so? So it's the idea of God's will controlling you, not your will, not the world's will, not what everyone else around you. And he uses this term, and we're going to dig into a little bit later, human passion you know that you're actually controlled by God's will and not by your human passion what's on the inside what your human nature wants to do and we all know that we have sin natures right we all realize that we have that within us the capacity to sin the desire to sin and we can't afford to let that control us but the daily battle that we all face is that which am i going to give into God's will or my own human will which is driven, for the most part, by your passions. But we'll dig into that in just a second. So Christ suffered. He's already established that. We're not going to go further into that. But how did he suffer? He suffered in the flesh. He suffered as a human. He took on human flesh. He suffered abuse, uh, accusations. He was accused of being blasphemous. He's accused of being a son of Satan. He was accused of all kinds of things, hanging out with sinners, And and then he actually suffered physical abuse on the cross. He was beaten. He was lashed. He was um, nailed to a cross. He had a, a spear thrust into his side. He suffered doing the will of God, doing what God had called him to do as a man. And we saw in verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. He died in order that he might be raised again by God, and it's that resurrection, that new life that he experienced, that we put our hope in, right? That's what we believe in because a Jesus who died without a Jesus who rose again is not a Messiah. He's not a Savior. He's a martyr. And so Peter wants us to realize that Jesus suffered, and his suffering and death is what set up his resurrection, And in a real sense, guys, our suffering in this earth, living in this world, is setting up our future resurrection, our glorification. In this life, we will have tribulation. But don't let that get you down because there's a new life coming. There's a resurrection coming. And that's part of what Peter's trying to drive home to to you and I. So he, he uses this word, arm yourselves. It says, arm yourselves with the same mind that Jesus had in regards to suffering. And the, the Greek word is applito, and it means to equip yourself. It's a, literally a military term. To arm yourself, get ready. You know, if you're a hunter, you, you get ready to go hunting. You get your gun out, you get your ammunition out, you clean your gun, you sight it in, you get ready to go. This is the idea is arm yourself for what? Suffering. It's coming. But this is what you got to remember. There's a big difference between you suffering for your own stupidity and your own sinfulness and you suffering for doing what is right. You ever suffered because you're stupid? Yeah, nod your head, yes. You ever suffered for your own sinfulness? Yes. And it's really interesting. When I get in those moments and I find myself suffering because I did something really stupid or sinful, I, I, I almost always say, God, why are you doing this to me? And it's almost like God says, "I'm not doing anything to you. this is your, you're reaping the results of your own lifestyle, but if you do what God has called you to do and you do what is right and you know to be right and you suffer for it, that's a completely different thing. and the truth is most of us don't experience that very often. I think we should experience it more often that we are suffering for doing what God has called us to do, and that's a good thing and Peter says God smiles on that. He looks at us and he's grateful. Don't you know God was pleased with his son? As a matter of fact, what did he say? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because he obeyed even to the point of death. He did what he was called to do, even though he had to suffer for it. So he says, arm yourselves with the same thing. Get yourself ready for battle is what he's telling you and I. As you live the Christian life, you better be ready that in this world, in this context, it's not going to be easy. So I'm to have the same mindset that Jesus Christ had towards what? Suffering. Obedience and suffering. He says, in the same way, the same mind, and that word means to profess the same opinion. What was Jesus Christ's opinion about suffering? It's part and parcel with obedience. I'm going to obey, knowing that I'm going to suffer. As a matter of fact, you remember when Jesus said to the disciples as he got closer to the time, he said, I'm headed to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to suffer. And what did the disciples say? What did Peter say, the guy who wrote this letter? Oh, no, 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 that's not going to happen. I'll stop it from happening. And what did Jesus say to him? Get thee behind me, Satan. What did he mean by that, that he's literally Satan? No, he's saying, you are more aligned with the enemy than you are with the will of God. You are more in line with what Satan would have me do, which is what? Don't go to the cross than what God wanted him to do. And so this idea of of hating suffering and I refuse to suffer and I'm not going to suffer for my faith is basically aligning you with the enemy, not with God Almighty. So he says, have the same way of thinking, the same mindset, the same opinion about suffering that Jesus Christ had, the same intent. See, Jesus set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem, knowing what? That he was going to die there. He said, I'm going. Why? Because that's what God told me to do. And, And part of what I struggle with is I often... You know, we, we sometimes say, well, if I just knew God's will, here's the deal. You know God's will nine, point, nine times out of ten. You really do know what he wants you to do, but you just don't want to do it. It's, it's too uncomfortable. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. Is it God's will for you to share your faith with lost people? Yes. Every lost person? Yes. I don't think God ever looks at that, Not that one. Not that guy. No, don't, don't even bother. He's a lost cause. Don't. It's God's will. I know God's will when it comes to sharing my faith with the lost. I'm supposed to do it. What keeps me from doing it? I don't want to do it. It's uncomfortable. I may get rejected. They may laugh at me. They may reject me. They may refuse me. I may suffer. But he says, have the same intent, the same mind that Christ had, how did Jesus think about obedience and suffering? I'm going to do it. Remember what he said in the garden? Father, if it could be your will, let this cup pass from me. His humanity did not want to suffer. Remember, he was he had a human body. He knew what it w- what meant to have pain. I think Jesus woke up some morning sleeping on a rock with a crick in his neck. I think he might have had back problems. Who knows? I think Jesus had human issues just like you and I did. And the idea of going to the cross and dying an unbelievably cruel death, nobody looks forward to that. But yet what did he do? I'm going to go through with this. Not my will, but yours. Remember, what did he say? It's God's will, not human passion, not your own human flesh. He would rather suffer than disobey God. Now, I know when Peter says this, have the same mind, the same intent, the same desire, the same passion, the same outlook on suffering that Jesus had, that's impossible because I'm human. But I also have within me the Spirit of God. I also have the capacity to look at it differently because I have the Spirit who helps me see that my suffering will bring glory to God. My suffering on this earth is is short in longevity. You may not think that. You may not realize that. At the moment, it may not feel like that. But the reality is I'm only going to suffer for so long if I suffer at all, and then I'm going to spend eternity with no suffering at all. And so I'm to obey. I'm to do the will of God because suffering was part of the, the obedience of Christ. It came with the territory. This, this phrase, same mind, reminds me of uh, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, speaking to believers, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality God as a thing to be grasped, held on to like a dog with a rag, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself By becoming obedient, how much so? To the point of death. See, the idea that he took on human flesh is great, and it makes a wonderful Christmas card illustration, right? Jesus in a manger. But the picture of him hanging a cross is not quite so idyllic, is it? But his taking on human flesh was all geared towards, pointing towards what? His death on the cross his suffering, because he came to suffer and die. That, that's why he's here. And you know, the, the reality is, guys, when, when Jesus Christ saved you by dying for you, and you placed your faith in that saving work that he performed on the cross on your behalf, here's the reality. In a real way, he saved you to suffer on his behalf. Now, that, that doesn't preach well. Uh, if I wrote a book about it, it wouldn't sell well because it doesn't sound very appealing. It, what, what sounds appealing is that he died for my sins. I'll never have to pay for those sins and I get to spend eternity in heaven. But to think it, that he died so that I might have new life and suffer for him in this life so that God might be glorified through me is kind of weird to think about. And yet that's a big part of what Peter's trying to tell you and I is that we have been called to suffer on his behalf as he suffered in obedience to God. So we're to have the same mind. But the question is, why? Why do I have to do this? And and what's what's my motivation for doing this? Why would I want to suffer? Why would I be willing to suffer, obey God, knowing that I'm going to suffer? Why would I want to do that? And he tells us in verse 1, he says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, I read that verse and I go, really? I look around this room and I, I don't. I, there's not a guy out there who's ceased from sin that I can see. We all struggle with sin, but what's he telling us? Whoever has suffered in the flesh, in the body, right here and now, living in this life, having come to Christ, if you've suffered in the flesh for what? Obedience. Doing what God would have you do. You have ceased from sin. Now, what's he saying there? Is he saying that you will never sin again or that you have now been freed from ever sinning again? I don't think that's the point. Is he promoting sinlessness? No, I don't think that's the point. Because, again, you've got to take these verses in the context of the rest of Scripture. Otherwise, you could take this all out of context and say, well, gosh, I'm never going to sin again. And here's the interesting thing. One of the series we did earlier... um, This issue came up, as a matter of fact, it was was Romans, and I I was getting emails from, because of a blog that I put out, emails from guys saying that they no longer sin. Not not guys here, but outside in the world that were reading my blog, and they claimed to be believers, and they said, well, we don't sin anymore. (laughs) I'm like, what does that even look like? I said, how do, you, how do you gel that with scripture? And they said, well, and they would use verses like this and say, well, we cease from sinning because we now have the spirit of God within us. We don't sin anymore. I'm sorry, but you, I can't find the support for that in scripture. If, if I take one verse out of context, I can support it, but I most certainly can't support it from my own life. We do sin. So he's not teaching sinlessness. Sinlessness. As a matter of fact, First John says, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. See, when John wrote that letter, there were people in the church claiming that they don't sin. I don't struggle with sin. I don't need to ask for forgiveness because I don't have anything to ask forgiveness for. I don't sin. And he goes, you're nuts. You're crazy. You're living a lie. He goes on in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. To say that you don't sin is not taught in Scripture. So that's not what Peter's saying when he says, if you have suffered in the flesh, you have ceased from sin. Because whoever has suffered in the flesh, in this body, for doing good has ceased from sin in the sense that sin no longer controls you. And the very fact that you're suffering for doing righteousness shows so. Here's the thought. Those who suffer for doing the will of God, what is good and right in this life by their very actions are what? Showing that they are no longer to the control of sin and their own human passions. Think about it. Every guy in this room, I would think, I would hope, I would pray, has had some point in their life where they have done the will of God. They have done what is right and good. They obeyed God. The very fact that you did that, and if you suffered because of it, is a sign to you that, guess what? You are no longer under the control of sin because you don't have to sin anymore. You can do what God wants you to do. Prior to coming to Christ, what do the Scriptures teach us? You were under the control of sin. You were a sinner who could do nothing but sin, and everything you did was sin. Even your good deeds were sin. Why? Because they were motivated out of selfishness. But see, what he's telling you is you are no longer somebody who has to sin because you have been freed from sin. You will sin. I do sin. You do sin. But I have ceased from sin in the sense that it no longer controls me. I'm no longer controlled by the human passions. So he says in verse 2, You can now live the rest of your days, having come to faith in Christ, whatever point in your life that happened, you can live the rest of your days in the flesh, in this body, in this world. How? No longer for human passions, but for the will of God. See, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you cannot do the will of God. And even if you attempt to do the will of God, you will do it in sin because you are in sin. You're a sinner. You are not saved. You have not been freed from sin. But when you come to faith in Christ, I have the capacity, you have the capacity to live the rest of your days on this earth, what? No longer controlled by your human passions. I don't have to live according to the flesh, as Paul talks about in Galatians. I don't. And you don't. And this, this phrase he uses, or the word he uses for flesh is epithemia, and it's, it's your desires. It's your cravings. It's those longings that you have that come from your flesh. And you know what they are. I don't have to describe them, right? You, you know what that's like when you see a, a woman who's not your wife, and, and it goes from thanking God for her beauty, which very few of us do. We don't even start there. It, it goes way beyond that really quickly. It's like, golly. That is one fine looking woman. And then you start imagining and picturing and your mind goes to the races and it goes places God never intended it to go. You know what he's talking about. It's desires, cravings, longings, desire for what the flesh would have you desire. That, That which God forbids. That which God doesn't want you to have. So we know what it is and yet I don't have to live according to that. I have a new capacity, a new power within me. And all of this is to say, guys, that when you come to faith in Christ, your desires should change. And, and what I want you to wrestle with this morning, and in no way do I want, I'm not trying to make anybody doubt their salvation. That's not my goal. That's not my objective. But guys, at some point, we have got to wake up, smell the coffee, and go, have my desires changed? Has my life changed? Do I long for the will of God, or am I still driven by my human passions? Because Peter says, you have ceased from sinning. You no longer have to sin like you used to. And some of us are sinning in the same capacity that we used to. And yet our desires should have changed. We should want what God wants. We should desire what he wants. Life change. His will should outweigh my own. Do you wake up in the morning thinking, God, what would you have me do today? God, I know you want me in your word. I don't want to get in your word because I find it boring and I don't get a whole lot of it. But you know what? I'm going to do it anyway because that's what you would have me do. I'd rather watch the internet or get on the internet. I'd rather watch the news. I'd rather just go to work. But you know what? I'm going to do what you would have me do. Is that the desire of your heart? Or are you driven by those human passions? See, salvation should create in you and me a radical response, a radical change. And I think for many of us, maybe we had one early on in our salvation, but it's kind of diminished and it's kind of gone flat. And Peter's telling these people, as he's telling you and I, no, it should remain radical. Our willingness to do good and suffer for it is evidence that a change has indeed taken place. That I want to do what's right. I want to do what's good. I don't want to suffer, but you know what? I'm willing to suffer. Why? Because I want to please my God. If, if you are married and you care about your wife and you care about the health of your marriage, you suffer. Don't you? you? You willingly suffer sometimes. Doing for your wife what you know she would love for you to do to show love to her. You suffer. You suffer. And you die to yourself, and you say, man, I don't want to do this, but you know what? I, I know it would mean the world to her, and I'm going to do it anyway. You know, last, light, last night I got home, and my wife uh, just got home from Ethiopia. She'd been gone for two weeks, and, and my wife has no, like, um, neutral. It's, it's all, like, 100 miles an hour 100% of the time. She's just, like, always going. So I get home. I'm ready to relax. I got to get up early on Thursday morning, and she goes, hey, do you want to go with me somewhere? you know that battle you have in your life? Yes. Yes, honey. I'd love to go with you. Where are we going? Well, I have to run down to, um, South Fort Worth. I got to speak for 15 minutes at a church and then we're going to go to a fundraiser. And my eyes just kind of glaze over. I'm just like, yeah, let's do it. So we get in the car and we go. And the whole time I'm like, I do not want to be here. I don't want to go. I don't, but I did it. Now you can say, well, your heart wasn't in it. Well, yeah, but I did it. Why did I do it? Because I love my wife and I do want to spend time with my wife. It's the same idea here, guys. When you talk about, I love the Lord. Well, how much do you love the Lord? Are you willing to suffer in order to please him and to love him and to show your love for him? Peter says in verse three, the time has passed. Remember he's speaking to believers. The time has passed for you to be doing what the Gentiles do. Remember, the, the, when he says Gentiles, he's talking about lost people. What do they want to do? Live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. That's an interesting grouping, but it's a pretty comprehensive idea of all the sin that we can commit in the flesh under human passion. He says, yeah, the time's passed for that. You're way beyond that. You should have moved on. You don't need to live for that anymore. You're going to live for what? The will of God. You're going to do what God wants you to do. Why? Because this change has taken place in you. I should not be surprised at what people do in the world. And yet sometimes I'm appalled. I'm like, I can't believe somebody would do that. Really? They're lost. They're driven by human passions. People do what they're driven to do. And yet I should be surprised when I see believers doing some of these things. When you see yourself doing some of these things, it should wake you up and go, What's driving me? Is God driving me or am I driving me? Are my human passions driving me? See, our past and present should be radically different. It, it, people shouldn't, you know, you come to faith in Christ and they shouldn't go, Well, I can't really tell that anything happened. That's just wrong because you've been radically redeemed. You've been radically changed. You have the spirit of God living within you. And there should be a difference is what Peter's trying to tell you and I, a radical difference. And here's, here's why behavior is so important to Peter. And it's so important to us is that's where it shows up, right? How do people know you're saved? Your behavior Not because you go to church, not because you read your Bible, not because you go to a Bible study, not because you memorize scripture, or when you get in the car, you always listen to Christian radio. No, it's because your behavior changed, your passions changed, and you are willing to do what is right when before you weren't. And they look at you and go, what drives you? What motivates you? That's why conduct is so important. It should radically surprise your old friends. You know, when you come to faith in Christ, if your old friends think you're just like you used to be, something's wrong without salvation. And here's what I can tell you. There's nothing wrong with the Savior. So it must be you. It must be you. Either you really didn't come to faith in Christ or you are living in disobedience to God's calling on you. And Because all I can tell is that it should change. He says, with respect to this, this change they're surprised your old friends are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. You ever had that happen when your old buddies want you to go do something with them and you say no, I I don't do that anymore. And they make fun of you and they ridicule you. It's real, but my life should look different. Your life should look different than it looked before, even if it causes people to malign you. And here's what jumps out at me about this and why behavior is so important. Spirit-driven, gospel-focused behavior change. Your behavior convicts people. It should convict people. So when you go into the workplace, your behavior, how you handle yourself, should convict people because they innately know That's how I should have reacted, but I didn't. And I think it convicts both lost people and it convicts believers. But in this case, I think he's talking about how it should convict those who knew you before and they see how you act and your behavior convicts them and their conviction judges them. You know why people malign you when you do what's right? Because it judges them. They start looking and going, man, I don't act like that. I know I shouldn't be going to the strip club. I know I shouldn't be having an affair. I know I shouldn't be doing, man, I don't live like that. And their conviction judges them, and it drives them then to attack you because it condemns them. And here's what jumps out at me about this. Over in John chapter 16, Jesus says, When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of its sin, of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the rule of this world has already been judged. Here's the reality How does that happen? Where does the Holy Spirit reside? In you. So, how does the Holy Spirit do this? I think through you, through me. As I live my life in obedience to God, I will, because the Holy Spirit's presence in me, driving me, empowering me, encouraging me, my life will convict those around me. And here's what's going to happen. When you start to convict others, both believers and non-believers, it will cause them to judge themselves and condemn themselves, and they will not like. Does anybody like to be judged or condemned? No. And what's your reaction to it? you normally lash out. But see, that's the role we play in this world. See, we think of, we think of uh, evangelism as this wonderful thing where we go out and we share the good news and we tell people happy thoughts about Jesus Christ, and they all run and they flock and they just, oh, tell me more, tell me more, and they flood into the kingdom. Has that ever been the case? Rarely. You know, early in Acts it happened. 3,000 came to faith in Christ. But over the centuries, the norm is for us to live out our faith through our lives, sharing the gospel through our lives, and people reject us. What did Jesus suffer? He shared the gospel. He told about himself. He said, I'm the Messiah. I've come to change lives. And what happened to him? He was crucified. See, you living out your life is critical because that's how the Holy Spirit, I believe, convicts judges and ultimately condemns those around you. And some will be attracted to it and some will be repulsed by it and attack you for it. See, conviction involves someone showing his or her sin, seeing, showing someone, some, someone outside of you, his or her sin with a view to securing repentance. So what does that mean? That means as I live my life as a believer, doing what God would have me do in the power of the Holy Spirit, according to word of God, my life convicts them and I'm showing them their sin through my life, through my faithfulness. Why? So that they might repent, so that they might turn, so they might go, I want what you have. I don't want to live with this. I hate my life. I hate the fact that I'm having an affair. I hate the fact that I'm a liar. I hate the fact that I'm dishonest. I hate the fact that I'm ruining my family. I'm not the father I should be. What are you doing that's different? I can't stand my life. What should I do? And it's your life that has convicted them. That's what our presence should do in this world. Our new behavior should be the greatest defense for the faith as we live out our lives, as we as believers in jesus christ live out in this world and here's the thought that hits me your sanctification which is your growth in christ's likeness is what it should prove that your salvation was real many of us in the church today christ chapel included are not experiencing much in the way of sanctification we're really not growing we have stagnated we've grown stale Yes, we go to church. Yes, we may read our Bible occasionally, but there's no power. There's no joy. There's no, there's no conviction going on by the way we live our lives. We have blurred the lines. And that ought to cause us to step back and go, what is wrong? Because if I was truly saved, if my salvation was real, I should be radically being changed day after day after day. And everyone around me should be able to see it. And here's the cool thing, guys. I look at this room, and I see men who I see being changed radically. I do. I've watched you guys over the years, and I've seen your lives change, and I've seen you grow from this degree of faith in Christ to a greater degree of faith in Christ. I see it happening. I just want to see it more. I don't ever want to be satisfied with where I am spiritually. I don't want you to ever grow stagnant or just satisfied, status quo, I'm okay. No, never be okay with where you are. That is not contentment. That's complacency. Let let God continue to work in you so that you might impact the Gentiles, those outside the family of God. We're surrounded by them. They're everywhere, neighbors, even in our own families, the workplace. And he says, they will give account to him. They're going to someday be judged. I think that's his point in verse 5. They're going to get judged, and we should care about that because that judgment is real. And we have an impact on how that's going to take place, whether they know Christ or don't know Christ. And then in verse 6, he says, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is a somewhat controversial verse, but here's what I think it simply means. I think he's talking to the people in um, this letter about the fact that they have friends, relatives, family members who came to faith in Christ who have since died, and there's a question on where are they? What's going on? What happened? Because they lived with a sense that Jesus Christ is imminent. Peter talked about it. Paul talked about it. He's coming back. He's going to return. And they expected him to come back any day. So when a loved one who was in Christ died, they were a little shocked. What's happened? Where are they? Where are they gone? And so he says, this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, your family members who've died and gone on, that though judged in the flesh, what does that mean? They died Remember, death is something we're all going to go through, and it came as a result of the fall. We all get judged by physical death, but yet they're living in the Spirit. Where are they? They're with the Savior. Paul tells us in Thessalonians that we grieve over the loss of our loved ones who are in faith, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Because we know where they are. They're with him. But yet those unbelievers, those Gentiles who don't know Christ are going to be judged both physically with physical death and then eternal separation, eternal death. Huge difference. And guess what? Your life could make a difference. How you live your life could make a difference. So he's talking about believers who have died. They still had to suffer the penalty of physical death, but they are now enjoying life in the Spirit, heaven, eternal life, all the benefits and the promises that God has made through Jesus Christ. So now he brings us back to doing good, his main topic. He says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. It's a verse you've heard a million times. But what does it really mean? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. First of all, be self-controlled. Be of a sound mind. That's literally what it means. Be of a sound mind. Exercise self-control. Think about what you do. See, what gets me into trouble is not thinking. And when I don't think, what am I driven by? Passions. But if I stop and think about it, you ever, you ever sit down in front of the TV and go, hmm, I wonder what I should watch. If you really take time to think about that, what will you do? You'll watch probably something different than what you were going to want to do. But if you ever sit down in front of the TV when you're just really tired and you don't want to think, what do you do? You channel You channel surf oh, that looks interesting. She looks really interesting. I'm going to watch that for a while. And your mind is just gone. So he says, no, be be sober-minded. Think about what you do, everything that you do. Exercise some self-control. Think clearly and maturely about life, all of life. There is no moment for you to take a time out and go, well, I'm tired. You know, one of the worst things you and I can do as men is when you're tired, go get on the Internet. Now, you may not look at porn, but you know what you do? You're going to lust after a car. You're going to lust after a new gun. You're going to lust after new golf clubs. You're going you're to find yourself going places you don't need to go. Dissatisfaction, looking at things that, man, I wish. I, you can just go on Facebook and get dissatisfied, right? Man, I, they got to go to the Bahamas. I didn't get to go to the Bahamas. Man, his wife looks great in a bikini. My wife doesn't look great in a bikini. I need a new wife. (laughs) Suddenly you're off to the races. You're just like, all because you're on Facebook. Why? Because you're not thinking. You're not thinking clearly. Keep your spiritual wits about you. Why? Because you're a spiritual being. Think about it. So be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Be calm. Be collected. You know what it means to be sober? It means don't be drunk, right? You can't be sober and drunk at the same time. So be sober. Think about everything collected in your spirit. I love uh, what David Helm says in his commentary on Peter. He says, don't live like those in the world who are constantly looking for an escape. They They look forward to the evening and the weekend when they can turn off their mind. Man, don't you want to do that sometimes? I just want to turn off my mind. Man, what a stupid thing for us to do. First of all, it's really hard to get get mine started again. Just let it keep running. They desire an escape from reality. That is what the world is offering you and I. Just escape. Escape from reality. And Peter would say, no, be sober-minded. Be prepared. Be ready. Arm yourself with the same mind that Christ had. Why? And this is the key. For the sake of your prayers. Remember he said, if, if you don't treat your wife with honor, it's going to affect your prayer life. Now he says, do these things. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Right thinking is critical to effective praying. Because here's what happens. When you, when you get on the internet and you start looking at stuff you shouldn't look at, and then you feel convicted, you go, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Or you find yourself in a problem you start trying to pray your way out of it, but you have not been thinking clearly about it, your prayers will be weak, and you won't even know what to pray for. Right thinking is critical for effective praying. Clear prayers come from clear thinking. We don't know how to pray because we don't think. We're not in the word. We're surrounded by the world. We've let our mind go to the races. We've taken a time out when we don't need to be taking a time out. And then he goes on and tells us, keep loving one another earnestly. Be sincere. Don't be hypocritical about it. Be real, not fake in your love. Be selfless, not self-serving. See, he's giving you examples of what it means to live this stuff out in daily life. Be constant in your love, not temperamental. Well, I don't feel like loving today. She's not very loving this morning. She hasn't been loving to me. No, just love. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Here's what he means. Earnest, sincere love is life-changing. It is an impediment to their sin. It's really hard for someone. If somebody loves you, it's really hard to sin against them. It really is. When my wife loves me sacrificially, it's really hard for me to even get angry at her. Love prevents, it's an impediment to sin. When people feel loved, they don't want to sin. They don't want to hurt you. They don't want to harm you when they truly feel loved. And that's why love is so powerful it means it hinders the knowledge of a thing. When you love somebody deeply, sincerely, and not hypocritically, it pushes them away from sin. I don't want to do that because your love means too much to me. I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to disappoint you. And it goes right along with Proverbs ten, twelve: Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Guys, we got to learn how to love and love earnestly. we got to learn how to show hospitality without grumbling, and that's the key. Say, I'll show hospitality, but I'll complain the whole time. When are they going to leave? Man, we've got to clean the house. We gotta, I'm going to have to do small talk. I hate small talk. That guy's going to talk about stuff I don't want to talk about. He's going to talk about himself. I don't want to hear about him, and he doesn't want to hear about me, and I want to talk about me, but he want to hear about me. That is not, that's not hospitality. Open up your home. My home's not big enough. Just open it up to two people. Open up your home. Show hospitality. Be willing to be inconvenienced. Do it without complaining. And it should be marked by generosity. Why do you open up your home? Not to to prove people how great your home is and how wonderful you can cook and show them your new pool or whatever it is. No, it's to be generous to say, What I have is yours. My life is yours. My home is yours. My food is yours. Everything I have is yours. And then he tells us, Use your gifts. You have a gift. Use it as a steward of God's very grace. Every guy in the room who is in Jesus Christ has been given a gift. Use it generously. I don't know what your gift is. You may not know what your gift is, but find out, and then use it generously. And he uses just two representations. He says, if you speak for God, if you serve, serve on his behalf. Whatever your gift is, and he doesn't get into a list of the gifts. He just says, whatever it is, do it for God. Do it for God, on behalf of God, and in the power that he's provided. Use your gift. That's one of the greatest ways we can love the body of Christ is to use our giftedness. Why? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. What is the key? Why do we do any of this? So that our behavior glorifies God. When you open up your home, it glorifies God. And here's the real interesting thing. When you open up your home to the people you don't want to open up your home to, it really glorifies God. When I just have over the people I like, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But when I got a group of people over here that God says, hey, have them over. I don't want to have them over. I don't even like them. They bore me. They're not like me. No, have them over. See, if I do that, see, I'm doing something that goes against my human passions And I'm obeying, and I may even suffer for it to a degree, but it brings glory to God. It brings him glory. Why does God get glory when I do what is right? Because he's the one who empowers it. It's proof that he's alive and well and living in my life. Our ability to live differently is through Christ, he says. It's Christ who empowers me. It's his change that shows up in my life, and our changed lives proves that he really did save us and he is changing us, and God gets the glory. See, that should be the goal of my life and your life, that God would get the glory through your life, the way you live your life, that God would be glorified. So here's your discussion questions. Discuss some of the human passions we obey instead of God's will. Why are they so powerful? Now, if you want to, because I know you, you can talk in the third person. Well, I know some guys who struggle with X. That's fine, and they'll know you're talking about yourself. Why would it be so important to remember that everything we do is to bring glory to God? Not just coming to this Bible study, not just going to worship. Why is everything we do to bring glory to God? Why is that so important? And third, would you say that your behavior convicts your lost friends and work associates? If not, why not? And what could you do about it? Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these men, and I thank you for this very difficult topic, Father. It's, it's, I've been living with it for months, and it's it's still convicting. It's still hard to realize that my life, every aspect of my life is to bring glory to you, and it shows up through my behavior, how I live my life. And, Lord, I do want to live in obedience to you. I do want to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to live by my human passions. And that's my prayer for every guy in this room. I pray, Father, that none of us would walk out of here defeated, guilt-ridden, discouraged, but that we would realize that if we are in Christ, that we truly are new creatures. But it's got to start showing up. And we need you to help make that happen. And it starts with us just being willing to submit to your will and obeying that will. Thank you for these guys. Bless the time around the tables, and we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Have fun.